We've got a full house and a jam-packed agenda for episode 30 of the Rugby Paper podcast. Joining me, Nick, Chris and Brendan to discuss the rugby championship, his son Lewis and the case of premiership debt among several clubs is none other than Australian Rugby Hall of Famer Michael Lyne. I'm back with Nick. I'm back with Brendan after a hiatus last week. Good to see you again. And hopefully Chris may drop in, fingers crossed. And we're with Australian rugby legend, Michael Liner. How are you, Michael? I'm very good, thank you. Hi, everyone. Where are you calling us from? For me, I'm, I'm at, uh, in Richmond. So I just got home from work. Um, so I'm ready to relax and talk to you guys. And you're just after a summer of travelling all over the place, right? Because you were in Australia and then you had a little holiday in Europe. Yeah, I was. I witnessed uh, England get lucky down in Australia, and then um, <laughs> yeah, we were over in uh, Italy for a couple of weeks over there, which was very nice. Yeah, with the England Australia series, obviously, it's slightly old news now. We won't dwell on it too much. I know you said it slightly jokingly, but was that your take on it? Was England got slight, a little bit lucky with injuries and red cards, etc.? Well, look, I I think overall England were probably the better team over over the three tests when you look at them all. Australia had their chances to win the games they needed, the, the two they lost, but they didn't take them and England took theirs when they when they did. So, you know, it was a it was it was a tight series. And um I sort of looking back on it now think, well, you know, was it it was two teams that are still finding their identity a little bit. If we look at what had happened since with Australia, you know, they've, they've won some good games and then lost badly the week later. So there's a consistency issue there. They've got a lot of injuries at the moment, which has started against England. But maybe that's a good thing looking at the World Cup down, coming down the track. We're getting to know whether players are, uh, can compete at that level or not. But overall, I think England were probably the better team. And, and of course, the, the score reflected that. In terms of Australia's prep for the World Cup, and we'll get into this a little bit with the Rugby Championship, but first of all, I want to ask as a former fly half yourself, how you assess whether Quade Cooper's injury may come as actually a little bit of a blessing in some ways, despite the fact that he was obviously the first choice 10 at the time. Yeah, it's a shame for Quade that he that he had has had his injury problems and uh and now with Noah Lolasio, um, who got his chance of getting against England because of Quaid's injury, um, has now sort of taken a knock last week. So we don't know whether he'll be around. Um, they've called back Bernard Foley, which yeah. I was a bit surprised with. I like Bernard Foley as a player and as a person, but you know he, he's, he hasn't played for three or four months after being in Japan. He hasn't played international rugby for a long time. And I, for one, while not trying to criticise the selection of Bernard or Bernard in, in any way, I would have preferred that Australia went and looked for a younger, there, there are some younger players, younger tens um, that are around and playing for Waratahs and what have you. So I probably would have given them a go um, rather than going to somebody that hasn't played international rugby for a year and a half. Putting you on the spot slightly, bro, are there any younger names that stand out to you at the moment? Yeah, there's a couple of the Waratahs, Harrison and uh, Ed Med. There's uh, are those the two that I probably would have looked at. They've both had reasonable years at uh, a reasonable season so far, and they're they're, they're good players. Uh, so those two in particular, I think you know they consider themselves pretty unlucky not to be included. Let's zoom back out and look at the rugby championship as a whole, which we have touched upon quite a lot with the rugby paper podcast but it is just chopping and changing each week so yeah. a brief rundown we've got the final si mini series of fixtures to go that is to say we've got the Bledisloe Cup and Argentina playing the box each side is two wins two losses and if we break the tournament down each mini series we've had four one all draws Argentina before the 
last weekend of fixtures were top of the table. Now, having lost to the All Blacks, they're bottom. I mean, you know, it's a case of what the hell is going on. But my question to you, Michael, do you think this is good for rugby? <laughs> I think the uncertainty is good for rugby. As I've always said, a monopoly is the, the worst thing in sport. And New Zealand's probably had that over the last few years. Um, South Africans would argue against that. But generally, over the last sort of period, New Zealand have been pretty strong. So it, it's quite weird. You know, when you look at Australia, for, for example, one week they win and win really well. And you think that's great. And the next week they have a disaster. New Zealand, the opposite. One week they lose and then the next week they kept, they're unbeatable. So, you know, it, it's in South Africa the same. So it, it's a weird one. I, in South Africa's case, I've got a lot of South African friends who keep saying, why are they messing with the team? Why do they change it every week? You know, we, we beat New Zealand well in the first test. Why don't we keep that? And, you know, I think we get hung up on the petard of the Rugby World Cup where, you know, we've got to get depth, we've got to get depth. I, I quite like the um, the attitude of if we win every test going into a Rugby World Cup, we're in a pretty good shape. I quite like that as a as a preparation rather than, you know, oh, we've got six fly halves and 12 props and all this sort of thing. We don't know who's number one and who's number two in that sort of, in those positions. So, you know, it's, it's, just, it's a weird one. And, of course, the coaches are all, you know, well, we're building to a World Cup, but... I just like to see teams winning. And in, in Australia's point of view, you know, we, we've had some really good games and, and then two very average games. Um, so where are we? Where are we? The same could be said against England. Um, you know, we've played some good parts within games and then, you know, parts of the game were poor. So, um, yes, injuries are a problem for Australia, but, you know, that's not an excuse. We should be performing a little bit better than that. And I'm a bit nervous going into... Uh, two tests now against the All Blacks, uh, particularly in the form they showed in demolishing Argentina last week. But it's a strange, it's a strange um, environment. And actually, for the sport, it's not too bad. You know, you don't know who's going to win. And that's always a nice thing. I guess the slightly weird thing, and Brendan, I'll come to you about this, is that we haven't really had a single nail biter in the whole championship. You know, Australia, South Africa, first test was close-ish on points, eight, eight points, but that's the closest we've had. So in terms of statements, Michael mentioned New Zealand's demolition of Argentina. Yes, but Argentina beat New Zealand on New Zealand soil for the first time and also comfortably. So does that undermine the word statement slightly? It's very difficult to, to read, like everybody said. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that Argentina are the only side to have won back-to-back matches even. I mean, that's how topsy-turvy it is. Um, so you know, it's, it's almost impossible to get a form line. I would say, however, that this, is, this tournament has engaged me much more than recent rugby championships. It might just be its timing. There's no sort of Lions fatigue from last summer when we all got a bit fed up and fell out of love with rugby. But it's been really good to watch. You don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and I think the good passages from all the teams have been outstanding. Uh, and yet they do fall away alarmingly. I mean, I thought Australia had turned a corner when they beat South Africa. I thought it's not the quality of some of their tries was outstanding. And I just didn't expect them to sort of, you know, I mean, the scoreline wasn't too bad last week, but I felt they lost fairly meekly, to be absolutely yeah. honest. Uh, and Argentina, I did think that they were going to get a humping. They are not a team who can put three matches, world-class performances together in a row, I don't think. And, you know, coming off the, the great win uh, against Australia, the historic win against New Zealand, I always felt they were going to get a bit of a, hard time um, but again I didn't expect them to fall away 53-3 or whatever it was so um, yeah impossible to read but bloody entertaining to watch really enjoyed it uh, it's, it's really been a you know good viewing August and September and Michael looking ahead to the Bledisloe what are 
Australia looking at as being a success from here? Obviously, they've got one win against both South Africa and Argentina. Is that seen as the sort of success threshold? Get one win against the All Blacks? Or do you think they'll be eyeing up a clean sweep? <laughs> <laughs> one win, I'd be happy with one. Because um, <laughs> we had, to, sorry, I should I should preface that with some context. We had James Hall in, and he said they'd be eyeing up a clean sweep. Well, when did you talk to him before the before the last South African game? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a few weeks ago now, three weeks well, ago look, maybe. You don't you don't go out and say, "Well, we've got you." You go out, you're going to win the game. You know, you that's that's the goal in any sport, but in rugby, you know, too. You know, you, the next Test match, you you're there to win it, so that'll be their goal. But you know, if we look back in, a, in in three weeks' time and we get one out of one out of two, I'd say that's not a bad result. You know, against the New Zealand team, when you looked at them last week and how they played against Argentina and how they played in the second test against the Springboks, that they were pretty strong. The other two, they were pretty poor. So it's a bit. It, it, it's like every team in the competition. We keep saying it, but no one win against the All Blacks would be a nice one. And do you think it's coming in game number one or game number two? If you had to give a little prediction. Personally, um, and I don't think it's coming in either game. <laughs> I'm a little bit worried. Um, but having spoken to a number of, once again, um, New Zealand friends, they're worried because they think New Zealand's there for the taking. And it has been proved right 50% of the time so far. So they just think that New Zealand sort of, you know, they're, they're not what they were. And, and they're, you get in front of them. Um, and this has always been the case with New Zealand. They're not used to being under pressure because they're always in front um, but if you get them under pressure get them chasing the scoreboard and all that sort of thing really easy to say hard to do but they're like anybody else they tend to panic and they probably panic a little bit more than others because they're not used to being in that situation um, so you know once again it's an opportunity for Australia but I'd like to see some more you know you don't want to sort of throw young kids to the to the wolves but um, I'd like to see you know, us going forward and looking at newer, younger players as opposed to going back and picking, say, a Bernard Foley, for example. Um, I'd rather see us, you know, let's see if these guys, what they're, what they're like. Do you think there's enough time before a World Cup to do that? Yeah. That it's only a year out, you do. Yeah, I do. Because we've got a whole season to go before the World Cup. So, you know, we finish up here, we've got Autumn Internationals and then we've got full season next year. So there is time, yeah. If we obviously we've sung the praises of the tournament a little bit, there have been a few on-field uglier sides. Looking at the Argentine, sorry, the Australia South Africa games in particular. Obviously, Mapimpi's try at the weekend sparked a pretty much all-out brawl. Which I don't know, depending on who you are, it was either entertaining or just a complete farce. And then we had, speaking of complete farce, Nick White's dive the week before with Fafter Clerk getting yellow carded as a result. So, Nick, what do you make of all that sort of stuff, sort of coming to the fore? Well, it wasn't exactly an all-in brawl, as in the old style. It was an all all-in pushing and shoving. But, By twenty twenty-two standards, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, look, I mean, it was. It was. It wasn't a great um, advertisement in some ways, but it showed. It showed the emotional intensity of the Springboks in that game. But what's been really interesting to me about the Rugby Championship has been the way in which teams, all of the teams have failed to sustain the level of emotional intensity. And, you know, a 50-pointer for the Argentines after coming off the sort of win that they, they, they had in New Zealand and having the championship for the first time, really probably in their, in their hands, I thought that the, uh, you know, the, the level of that defeat, the margin of that defeat was massively, massively disappointing. 
But it's been, it's not just the Argentines who've fallen off, it's Australia, it's New Zealand, and uh, it's South Africa, probably most surprisingly in a sense. The Nick White thing, I, I just think that you've got to get to grips with play acting and shamming, and you've got to hit it really hard at the outset. I would give what I would call a safety yellow card, whereby the bloke who's shamming is sent off for 10 minutes. His team are down to 14, and uh, there are no replacements for anybody who uh, is suspected of play acting. And I think that that would nip it in the bud pretty pretty quickly. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't particularly um, enamoured with what Nick White did there, and I think that was a real catalyst for the issues that happened in the next test, where yeah. South Africa felt felt greatly affronted. Their fans were. You know, you read online or in the press, they were very angry with Nick White. And um, I think the frustration in the test match, um, the second test match, Springbok Australia, really boiled over in the end. And, um, you know, there was frustration in that there wasn't a lot of play. There was a lot of blowing of the referee's whistle and not always correctly. And players sort of get frustrated. And I think that just blew open. But, you know, I'm all for trying to get rid of this play acting stuff. You know, it did damage. Well, Nick, you... He did damage um, Nick's moustache, but I'm, I'm sure he was all right. <laughs> Hi, Chris. Apologies. Apologies. Um, traffic nightmare taking my dog to hydrotherapy. hydrotherapy without, with, without my telephone. Hello, Michael. Don't ask. How... <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard of a lot of excuses, but... Yeah. Taking a dog to hydrotherapy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like to take the imaginative approach to bullshit. And, um, and it was actually I, you having the hydrotherapy, was it? Definitely was. Well, 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 had the dog been driving, I'd have been here on time. Um, <laughs> Just so yeah, you know, all this will be making the cut, so you'll be publicly disgraced. But that's fine. Yeah, well, that's, that, well that's, that's really good because it's usually, it's usually the subject of the podcast who's made to look. Uh, anyway, Michael, how are you? It's nice to see you. I'm very good, thanks, Chris. Yeah, thank you. It's it's a nice to nice to see some good old friends on the on the screen here. Uh, yeah. Go back away, don't we? Yeah. Well, back what? to the day you remember signing for Saracens in some pub or some brasserie in London. It was um, the brasserie on Thayer Street in Marleybone. I think it was um, Cafe Rouge, was it not? Yeah, I think it was an early Cafe Rouge. It was about four hundred yeah. people in a room for about eighty, and Nigel had laid on a a spread um and it was the worst kept secret in christendom i think that michael Lyon was rebuilt but it, it was the start of professionalism in this country really it was, a, it was quite a big day yeah i remember um nigel's office was across the road and i remember i was in there and we came down the stairs and just at the door i said i actually i do remember this really clearly i said are you ready for this and he goes for what and he, i said there'll be a lot of people over there and i don't think your life's going to be the same because he was very <laughs> As you know, he was very sort of understated, wasn't in the public, you know, he was just a the city investor, you know, anonymous city investor who did really well and stayed out of the limelight. I said, your, your life's just about to change. And he goes, really, you reckon? And then he walked across the road and went, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and it certainly did change after that. I, I did, talking of Cafe Rouge, Michael, I do, I think the first time we met, face-to-face was when the Independent sent me to do a big interview with you, some endless 2,000-word piece. And <laughs> you invited me to Hampstead, yeah, where there was a Café Rouge down the road from your house. That's right. 
And I realized when I knocked on your door that I hadn't brought my tape recorder. Nothing's changed, uh, has it? So I thought, well, that's okay. I'll just have to sit there and take notes while we have a bite of lunch. And then we sat down and I realized that I'd also forgotten the notebook and a pen. <laughs> and I thought, this, this, this bloke who's done a bit in rugby is going to think I'm the biggest prat who ever walked the face of the earth. So I'm not going to let on. And we went all the way through and I'm just busily memorising as best I could everything you said. And right at the end, when I thought I got away with it, you said, mate, you're not a great one for taking notes, are you? <laughs> I was very impressed with your memory. To which I said, it's more of an impressionistic piece. It's pathetic. It was almost as bad as taking the dog to hydrotherapy. <laughs> yeah, I was going to um, say, you're not doing much for recovering <laughs> the reputation. <laughs> but we got... Yes, it's a Picasso impressionist piece. Uh, we got well. We sort of got away with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Well, forgive me for being late. Anyway, no, no, that's absolutely fine. I mean, we are talking about disgraceful behaviour um, in the form oh. of Nick White's dive. So, just give us your thoughts on that, Chris. <laughs> um, it was it was laughable, wasn't it? And I could understand the sort of whole South African fury of it, and I think the fury would have been a whole lot greater possibly back in the days when Michael was playing, when there wasn't so much camera activity and, and the impossibility of taking um, harsh revenge on someone, which was a part of rugby back in the, back in the day, um, or else Eddie Jones would never have got where he is. Um, I think um, it, 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 was, it, was, it was so pathetic that it was just funny. And but didn't you, like, didn't you like how then... While he was down, pretending that his moustache had been taken off his face, oh, Raph just no. dived on him and gave him a big shot. <laughs> I mean, didn't <laughs> really <laughs> gave it to him. It's like you know, they're, they're both as bad as each other. The halfbacks, it's their, it's their yeah, job. I laugh at the moustache anyway, Michael. I, I mean, every time I see him, I laugh at his moustache. It's like Musarulo. Nick's on the call, mate. Nick's I was going to say Nick's sitting there feeling very self-conscious <laughs> right now. I mean. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, his moustache just makes Nick look, Nick's look like a tired rodent. And in fact, is it is it age, Nick? Because I, I think Nick White's moustache was just so twirly and vibrant and full of energy. And you've you've got that sort of rat thing hanging around. Yeah. And, um, talking, of, talking of tired rodents, you've got an even larger <laughs> one around your neck, mate. <laughs> I think Nick White looks like Biggles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he waxes the end of it, I think. Air Commodore, you know, Air Commodore yeah. White. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about Nick White's moustache. Like like you say, it 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 it's got a slightly artificial look, hasn't it? <laughs> Maybe a bit more artificial now that Fass had a go at it as well. Yeah, it goes with oh, the personality there. On, on a serious <laughs> point, I, I, I don't know what we do about that in the game. Though. I mean, I mean, does any is there any way of taking any action against? I mean, we had the Jalanche thing as well, didn't we? Which was not, which which was not so great when when France were in Australia and he uh, did he get the guys red carded? I think yeah, he did. it was Corabetti, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it's always it's always Corabetti. It's not a way we want to go, is it? I don't think, I mean, in all fairness, I mean, it's just an attitude that you don't particularly want to see in the game. Um, just to tell a little bit of a lighter story about moustaches, I remember we had a tour over here in the early 90s and it was one of Jason Little's first tour and we're all sort of, you know, at that age where, oh, let's grow moustaches and beards and that sort of thing. And we were doing that and we were playing in, um, I think we were playing Wales at Cardiff Arms there and we were watching the, the replay on the Monday and 
we actually caught Jason Little because he he he. I still don't think he shaves now, but he, his his moustache was a fairly poor effort. And we caught him on the field after somebody had scored a try. He was walking back and he put his hand down in the dirt and started rubbing his <laughs> and try and give it a little bit more of a blackened sort of look. So that was a so he has we haven't let him forget that actually. Oh, that's really good. Nick, yeah. do you do any of that? Yeah, mud moustache all the yeah, time. Yeah, well, no, podcast. Bit of polish. Too, to be fair, yeah. <laughs> Especially <laughs> yeah. if it's a visual podcast. Yeah. <laughs> do you think, does anyone think that either Christoph Ridley or Craig Maxwell Keys will ever attempt to grow a moustache? And if they do, how long will it take them? Because they both look six years old. Yeah, they can use the Jason Little method. That's, yeah, the only way. The only if way. If they're caught on artificial pitches, Michael. <laughs> That's true. Well, they get those little black beads. <laughs> <laughs> Pick it on. Shout out to Craig Maxwell Keys, actually, who, Chris, before your time on the podcast, did come on. And he was an absolutely brilliant guest. Now, going back to the Northern Hemisphere perspective on the rugby championship, and this is a question to the floor. Are the likes of Ireland and France licking their chops slightly at this? Because, Brendan, as you said, every team has fallen off at one stage. And that's something you can't really say about what well, you can't say at all about Ireland or France in the past 18 months. Neither team has fallen off. And you wouldn't say that the standard has been overwhelmingly high. So it's not like it's the four Southern Hemisphere big dogs at the peak of their powers. I don't know about licking your chops because both have got decades of history of coming up short against New Zealand in various series. Um, I was going to say in the World Cup, although France have, of course, got World Cup wins in knockout matches, but obviously haven't won the tournament. I mean, they'll be encouraged in that they are in a good place. They're in good form. They've got loads of good players. I think both are still on an upward trajectory. Um, they won't be in any way complacent. Southern Hemisphere teams are Southern Hemisphere teams. And come the World Cup, I have no doubt that at least two of three of them will be in the semi-finals. So, um, you know, no, no complacency, but there's nothing to fear out there. You know, there's no side uh, in the Southern, Southern Hemisphere playing rugby now from another planet, which has been the case some years, you, you fear, you know, or certainly between World Cup cycles. So, um, no, as you were, but quietly confident, I think, would be France and Ireland, but not overconfident. Did you not think, Brendan, that in I, I know both losing sides last weekend were a long way off it. Um, uh, a long way off from perhaps where they'd been the previous week, certainly in Argentina's case. But there was something a little chilling from the Northern Hemisphere's perspective about the performances of both South Africa in their physicality and the concentration of their physicality and their application and the ferocity of their game. And New Zealand... And, and I know they often prosper when when the other side and prosper big when the other side aren't absolutely at the top of their game. But to play such a faultless brand of rugby, I mean, there was barely a mistake in really difficult conditions. And and for people like Rico Ione to play as well as he did in 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 very very in very very wet conditions, I thought just sent a warning shot across the bows of anyone who was thinking in terms of the Southern Hemisphere no longer really threaten us in the way they once did. No, they were absolutely brilliant. And, and, and incidentally, I think it was me actually who, who called the uh, Ricky Ayani experiment into doubt, you know, making a world-class wing into a centre. He's beginning to make it work, isn't he? He looked fantastic. But we go back to Michael's point. Well, you got used to New Zealand playing like that consistently, to be honest. But this is in a series of four matches so far, 
in which two of which they were rubbish. So, you know, so they, you know, and then one very good win in South Africa, one absolutely brilliant performance in the rain against the Pumas. But you've got to set that in context of this whole summer series. They've been sort of not isolated high points, but it hasn't been the norm. So I think there's still a bit of vulnerability there. South Africa, you know that when push comes to shove and the big match comes, they won't be far off whatever they're, we know their strengths, and they'll be pretty close to full strength and given a top performance come Rugby World Cup next year. No question. I, I've got no worries about the box. I'm intrigued how New Zealand are going to progress, dip, progress, and, and what which New Zealand turns up next year. Yeah, it's the inconsistency that the, gives the Northern Hemisphere hope, I think, in all, all the teams, all four teams in the Southern Hemisphere at the moment. You know, and is it New Zealand, are they... You know, are they playing badly or the other team playing really well when they lose? And do they need that to then have motivation to play the next week really well? I mean, it's, it's quite strange. It's quite a strange thing. All those questions, you can argue each, either way. Um, but it's the inconsistency that gives, you know, hope to other teams. You know, on their day, you can beat them. You can beat them on your day. Yeah. Whereas in the past, it was sort of like, oh, you're half, you know, you you're almost defeated before you get on the field. Oh, God, it's the All Blacks. I hope we don't lose by too many. Absolutely. But having said that, I think France are, you know, they haven't played much, but they played Japan or whatever. But, you know, they're in a really good shape, I think, because they've got, you know, huge forward packs. So the physicality is there. They've got a lot of depth and they've got match winners. People, not just in, you know, nine and 10, but they've got match winners that you give them the ball, they can turn a game, you know, just all across the field and in depth. So, you know, I think they're looking pretty good. Ireland is always a question. You know, what they did down in New Zealand, I think, is fantastic. And I don't think any way belittled by the way that um, New Zealand have performed since. I think that that took a lot out of New Zealand um, and gave Ireland a lot of impetus. The only thing I think there's a couple of players that are in key positions that are starting to age a little bit for Ireland. Can they hold on for another year? Just going back to your France point about match winners, actually, it seems like a good time to mention the retirement of Remy Vakatawa, who was forced to retire from the game for medical reasons. And I think a lot of us would agree that two or three years ago, he was among the most feared 13s, maybe even the most feared 13 in the world. So I know the France midfield is looking particularly strong, Brendan, but it's still a loss, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, terrific player. It's a slightly odd one, this. I'm just reading up on it this afternoon. This was diagnosed, or not diagnosed, but identified as a problem in 2019. And then he played two test matches against Japan in July, wasn't it? So mm. it just seems a bit sudden. He's obviously failed a medical, and insurance-wise, he can't be employed in France. And we'll wait to see if, like one or two others, he is allowed to play in other leagues. But it didn't sound like it from the, the press conference yesterday. I mean, really sad. You know, I don't think he's a, he was in by any way a first choice for France anymore I think they, you know their midfield does not depend on, uh, on on his presence but I think he would have been a nice bloke to have had in their World Cup squad or challenging you know he is a unit uh, you know exactly what you're going to get from him uh, and has played pretty well for France even when they weren't playing that well two or three years ago I thought he always put his hand up 100% and obviously we wish him all the best in terms of recovery and in whatever he does from here now before we move on from the rugby championship I've actually got a little Small pop quiz for you gentlemen, and this is just to see if anyone actually knows the answer to this question. Obviously, we're headed towards a grandstand finish, and this is the time in a tournament where a hell of a lot of maths comes into play. So if all teams are on the same number of points by the end, it goes to most wins. 
right? If most wins are all the same, then it will go to head-to-heads. If they're all the same, it goes to points difference. Now, after points difference, say that is the same, do we know what the next parameter to, de- to decide it is? Uh, <laughs> um, is two or three teams having the coin same points? Uh, as, many, as many as you like. Could be four. It's a staring competition, which Ebenezer Beth wins. <laughs> it's a moustache growing competition <laughs> moustache growing competition so we've got Nick White winning one side and Evan Etzebeth winning the other I know which team I'd rather be on <laughs> then they have a three round boxing match between them <laughs> now, what I would I, love I, to see that that's, that's hurt my head trying to think about it yeah well believe it or not there are three more levels to it so the answer is it then goes to a points difference in terms of the head to head between the two teams. So say it's between New Zealand and Australia, you'd look at their two teams. If that's the same, then it's the team scoring most tries in the tournament. Right. Yeah. And then if that's also the same, the series win is shared. So you'd see Nick White and Ebenezer best share uh, lifting the trophy together, <laughs> which would be, well, I say lifting the trophy, Ebenezer both will probably be pushing it down. <laughs> onto Think Nick's the fun head, we but... could have had in five nations and six nations in years gone by when everybody finished on the same number of points. I mean, just you know, every other year, the championship was shared by two or three countries. This could have opened, you know, new avenues of pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> See, I love that sort of stuff. You probably saw the glint in my eyes. I was reading you guys those questions. I think it, the glint left Michael and Nick certainly. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just went, oh god, <laughs> somebody will work that out for us. Since when is in a round robin type tournament? Since when has, has sharing the thing just become a complete no-no? Never really particularly worried me if, if teams couldn't be split. I mean, I know it's difficult with something that has a final. Although you could have made the argument, couldn't you, when England and New Zealand played in the cricket 50-over final? Yeah. Uh, instead, of, instead of having some fairly farcical stuff going on at the back end, then they could have just shared the trophy. Does that, does that annoy anyone here in the way that it clearly annoys people that organise tournaments now? I think it annoys sponsors, doesn't it? They like to have a champion a to, to promote and, and take pictures of, but it doesn't annoy me at all. I quite like shared championships. But then again, we're glad if we take the England-New Zealand cricket final, we're glad that it went to the Super Over and had that sort of drama, aren't we? <laughs> Are we it's not? Been pretty dramatic up until that point. I, I would it was, yeah. I don't think anyone even won the. I don't think even anyone even won the Super Over, did they? Wasn't no, it? That was a tie as well. Just back on the number of boundaries struck. That was exactly it. Good, well, well remembered, Chris. Well, yeah, that, well, that, is, that is taking the Mickey. I mean, I mean that that that's just like saying you know you're going to win if your grandmother's name began with an M. You know. <laughs> Does your grandmother's name begin with M, Chris? Um, no, no, it became, uh, it, became it, it was an F for Florence, although it, it became B because she looked like Leonid Brezhnev. This <laughs> <laughs> is groundbreaking stuff on this podcast. I know, it's come on a lot. I've learned that dogs can go to spars. I've learned, you know, <laughs> <laughs> learned that Chris's grandmother looked yeah. like Leonid Brezhnev. Chris Hewitt nuggets, isn't it? Chris, have you been drinking at lunchtime? What have we... No. No. What's no, wrong with you? Sort of, I'm sort of always like this. It's my way of getting through the day, Michael. That's quite entertaining. I'd, I'd like to have a Chris cam. <laughs> it helped me get through the day, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, people, people keep asking me personal questions, to which I... I mean, know. I asked your grandma's name. I didn't ask whether she looked like a former Russian leader. No, but one thing leads to another. It's all, it's it actually, you know, everything connects. <laughs> Including your grandma's eyebrows, by the way. Well, 
Well, yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> they connected even when she wasn't frowning, which wasn't often. <laughs> Nick's there twirling his moustache. <laughs> right. Okay, Michael, it's time for your round of rugby 15. Oh, God. 15 questions. And when you're ready, we'll get going. Okay, fire away. Okay, nickname. Uh, Noddy. Do you want to explain why for listeners? Um, it's pretty, after 50 years, you'd think I'd come up with a better better uh, story. But basically, it was because I fell asleep in class. Oh, sorry, no, I didn't fall asleep in class. Somebody else did. And um, we went down to cricket training and I started teasing him and calling him Noddy and as in nodded off to sleep. And he reversed it on me and said, how do you like being called Noddy? And that was it. <laughs> Oh no! No, yeah, so, it's a pretty dull story. I, I should make up a new one, but that's that was it. But it shows that nicknames can backfire. <laughs> that's right. There's a lesson. Best rugby memory. <laughs> that's an interesting one. Um, you got to think that you know winning the World Cup over at Twickenham here um was was pretty good. Uh, there's been quite a few. That's why I sort of hesitate a little bit. But that was a good one. Um, Bledisloe Cup victory in New Zealand. Um. Phew, uh, you know, the Grand Slam sort of stuff in 84. Um, but also I'd like to add, you know, I, I really enjoy watching my sons play rugby as well and, to, yeah. you know, whatever level they're at. But I really did enjoy watching uh, Harlequins win the, win the final a couple of years ago um, or a couple of seasons ago at Twickenham. That was a lovely rugby memory as a family. So, you know, rugby's given me a lot and I've got a lot of good memories. There's some, not some, there's some, some bad ones as well, but most of them have been really good. Most embarrassing rugby memory? Um, it was when I was young at school. Uh, <laughs> I was catching a high ball. I was back and catching a high ball and sort of ran into a post, um, into the goal post, and that wasn't uh, – I probably I had to be sort of helped off the field. <laughs> um, so, I, I, yeah, that wasn't very good. Was that your last game ever at fullback then? No, cemented no, the move to fly had, um, it was, We were over in New Zealand in 1986 when we won the Bledisloe Cup in a three-test match series over there for the first time. And um, it was after the we, – we, we'd won the first and after the second test down in Dunedin, if we won that, we were going to go for a bit of a holiday up into Queenstown for a, for a few days. But we had to play Southland down in Invercargill and – we got down there on the Sunday. We lost the game, lost the second test. And so um, Alan Jones, the coach, was calling everyone in. And, and, the, and the test team was basically being given, you know, the week off, um, go and play golf and take it easy and re recharge the battery. So I got called in. We're all in the bar on the Sunday evening and, you know, Andrew Slack's coming out. Oh, good. You know, I've been given the next couple of days off. And, and so I go in and I'm all expecting, you know, to be given a couple of days off so I can go and play golf with Slacky and a few others. And Jones says to me, oh, Matt, I've got a really big surprise for you, a real honour. You know, I want, I'm going to play you at fullback and make you captain against Invercargill. So <laughs> I said, what? You're making me fullback. All they do is kick it up in the air and run through and tackle you without the ball. And so I came out and the guy said, right, what time are we teeing off? And I said, I've got to go to training because I'm captain and fullback. So, so that was the next time I played fullback and the last time, I think. <laughs> Pre-game tune. Didn't really, back in the day, we didn't have sort of um, iPods or Walkmans or all those sort of things. I, look, I probably didn't have one. I used to like more up-tempo music back in the day, so I'd probably play that at home. 
before I went. So more up-tempo sort of rock or punk or something like that back in the day. I probably didn't have one in particular. At the risk of stereotyping, Michael, did you not like timey kangaroo dance sport? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> no, my, my sort of was more feel-good sort of big guitar tunes or energy, energy. I used to like the energy tunes, but then... Men at work. How about them? They're good Aussie men. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was more into sort of actually British sort of punk, more like, you know, back in the day of the, the clash and all those sort of things. So, but also, you know, I, I used to like try and you know, that might be earlier in the day, but before the game, I was very calm. I tried to be very calm. So keep myself um, very low key and very quiet. So, you know, didn't play a lot of tunes and all that sort of thing. Really, I, I, I like to be more calm and quiet. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Post-game meal. Post-game meal, gosh, uh, whatever I could get my hands on, I guess, back in the amateur days. Uh, when we when we played sort of Queensland, um, there was a stage there where a lot of us used to go to a, a, a nice Thai restaurant um, and, and have a nice Thai meal and things like that after the game. Um, that became a bit of a tradition for us, a few of us, which was nice. Yeah, nice. Best player you've played against? In my position, probably, I mean, I've played against a lot of good fly halves from Fox to Jonathan Davies to, you know, you name it. Um, but I think the guy that sort of made the biggest impression on me when I was younger was Hugo Porter from Argentina. I just, I, you know, Argentina, he, he used to keep teams in games and just really control the game really well and, and, and a really nice person with it. So I, I think as an all-rounder and keeping his team in a game when they probably didn't deserve to be kept in there, I, I used to think he was a pretty good role model. Best player you've played with? There's been a lot. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you know, from John Eels to Nick Farr-Jones to Campo to Hoare and Little, you know, I've, had, I've played with a lot, you know, yeah. going back before that fella called Michael O'Connor, who was a dual international rugby league and rugby union player, was extremely talented. Um, in my position, I was fortunate enough to play with and against both Paul McLean and, and Mark Eller. Um, and they were, you know, two guys. I, they were very different players and very different personalities, but really um, people that I admired. And I always used to think as coming up as an 18-year-old and seeing Paul and Mark um, to take the best of both their games. Um, Paul very tactically aware and very sort of, um, good at keeping the team going forward, whereas Mark was brilliant with the ball in hand, as we all know. So I used to think as a player looking up to these guys that if I could take the best bits of both their game and put them into mine, that wouldn't be a bad place to start with trying to make myself into a decent player. So that's what I tried to do. And they're both very helpful in, in my early career. Favourite player right now? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I better say my sons, but no, I, I actually really <laughs> like watching Marcus Smith play. I, I, I love his enthusiasm and his um, just the way he plays the game with smile on his face, yet very, very determined. And um, I, I just really, really like watching him play. And I enjoy the way he um, plays the game. Um, I enjoy the way I enjoy the way he seems to enjoy it. Okay. And, and, and also people around him, I think he ma he makes them better players as well for being around there and around him. And I think that's a very, very good role as a fly half. You know, make players around you look good. Favourite stadium? Um, I used to like the old Sydney football stadium um, to play in. Um, it's, it's, it's no longer there now. <laughs> There's a lot of the stadiums I used to play in. 
it, it's, it had its opening weekend last weekend, um, the new stadium. But I used to like playing in Sydney and I found the stadium a, a, a great place to play. It was um, always got a good crowd there. It was a good pitch, all that sort of thing. I enjoyed playing there. But having said that, in 84, to come over here and play at all the home nation's grounds, um, that was pretty special as well because I'd only ever seen them on TV before and they were all yeah. these sort of mythical names like Carter Farms and Murrayfield and Lansdowne Road and Twickenham and you know to actually play on them and it was that was pretty special and I, they they still have a a fairly you know um, you know I'm, I, I like those stadiums I really do favorite gym exercise surfing I never went to the gym I, <laughs> I used to go surfing and that used to keep me pretty fit I think. Interesting. Okay. Never. Well, I never didn't, didn't go to the gym. I no, mean, fair I, enough. I hate the gym, and uh, yeah, and we really were amateurs in those days. And the forwards used to go to this thing called the gym, and uh, but I used to go surfing, and I think that kept me pretty strong and pretty fit. Yeah. Throughout my hard career. on the lower body surfing, isn't it? Not that I'm much of a surfer. Hard on the lower. No, it's all the it's all the up paddling. You try paddling. Oh. <laughs> paddling for yeah, three that's hours. true. There you go. <laughs> through with, with, with big big waves all around you and sharks chasing you you know you, that tends to give you a bit of a bit of yeah, the adrenaline occupation if rugby didn't exist well it's probably what i'm doing now i mean when i as a as a player um i worked outside rugby and you know in commercial property and all sorts of things but i'd like to say that if rugby didn't be exist i probably would have liked to have been a professional golfer nice very nice superstitions um, superstitions. I used to often sit in the same place in dressing rooms. I um, put my left boot off first and left sock on first, left boot on first, that sort of thing. I also had a lucky pair of uh, speedos, swimming, swimming um that I used to wear. So, did you play and, in them? Well, I had shorts over the top of them. Well, <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> rugby shorts over the top. But yes, so yeah, a lucky pair of speedos, and then when they wore out. I used to sort of cut little bits off them and, you know, so, but that, that I gave that away after a while. It was too hard to even think of, but actually there was a really good story because you made, when I goal kicked, um, I used to wipe my brow, both hands quite a bit. And uh, it was a bit of a habit and I was playing for Queensland and I had a particularly bad day of, 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 of kicking. And I remember getting a letter back when people used to write letters that was delivered to the Queensland Rugby Union and they gave it to me. It was some lady that said, I know why you missed all those kicks at gold last Saturday. And, I, and she said, you forgot to write your brow with your left hand and then your right hand. When you do that, you never miss. And I got to actually, it, it actually got in my head. I thought I was out there playing the next weekend and I was thinking of this letter, should I write should I wipe my brow with my left hand and then my right hand? And I didn't know what to do. So I got all, in the end, I just thought I'm going to incorporate it into my routine. So from then on, I used to write, wipe my brow left and right um, just before I ran into kick and uh, it became part of my routine. So one could say that was fairly superstitious as well, I think. Do you think she was just after your speedos, Michael? Maybe she was, maybe she was. But then I got another letter a few months later saying, you were two minutes into the game. There's no sweat on your brow. Why do you keep wiping your brow? <laughs> so that put other doubts in my mind. You know, the the, the benefits have been, you know, the, the problems have been a goal kicker. You know, what's my routine? 
I've never got quite as bad as Rafa Nadal with all his tips and carry on. But, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, it was just like, just do it, get it out of the way and get on concentrating and doing the doing the kick. Rugby law you would change. Well, I think we dealt with that a little bit earlier. I'd like yeah. to see two things. One, um, no, just one, just one. I'd like to see the replacement rule um, changed back to, you know, and, and keeping in mind health and safety and we don't want people getting injured and all that sort of thing. But I think this would help with it. Bring back the fatigue factor, open the game up a little bit more and reduce the size of the people by by allowing, um, by reducing the number of replacements to maybe two at the most and then, you know, a, um, uh, you know, medical, medical replacements yeah. that are checked. And lastly, best thing about working in rugby? Um, I think it's the people. When I, when I retired, I, I didn't miss the game at all. I'd had enough of the game. Um, but what I did miss was the people. And I've been lucky enough to, 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 to you know, work in rugby over the last sort of since I retired, whenever, how long ago that was. And so that's allowed me to keep in touch with people. It's also allowed me to keep in touch with the game a little bit because it's changed a huge amount since I played. Um, but it's like being on this call today, you know, guys that, you know, um, that we met, you know, Brendan and Chris and, and Nick, you know, we've been, we've been around a long time and known each other for a long time. And it's just, I really find that pretty special about rugby. You know, you um, doesn't matter where you go. And this is sort of, you know, it's just the people, it's the people I think I find the best thing about working in rugby. Yeah. And I think actually you're right. The rugby podcast, it is quite nice to see, Chris, Brendan, Nick, all you guys sort of reconnecting with someone that you very kindly put me in touch with. Uh, so, <laughs> no, that that's great. Thank you very much, Michael. That is your 15 quick fire questions done. Did I pass? You did, yeah, with flying colours. Fantastic. Right, well, let's get back to rugby things a little bit then. Michael, how's Lewis? He's good. He's, he's running at the moment. He had a an operation in the off season. He hurt his knee in the last game of the season down in Exeter and they repaired it. And so he's had time off and uh, he's back running and he tells me he should be available for selection in two or three, four weeks, something like that anyway. So yeah, he's in good shape. He's, he's sort of disappointed that, you know, he wasn't, didn't have the opportunity to push for, you know, the, the opportunity to go to Australia if he, if he, if selected. But, you know, he, he got himself right and had a, has had a good off-season so he can launch himself into the new year and um, try and get back in the Quinns team. Can I ask what the knee surgery was? It was. He, he tore a uh, meniscus very slightly and uh, they went in to take it out but then saw it could, could be repaired, which is a longer operation and a longer recovery, but in the long run, much better for the person um if you can repair your knee rather than taking something out which so they repaired it and he, he seems to be in pretty good shape he looks you know he's kept looked after himself and so touch wood that you know he gets back and and playing and playing well and we'll see what happens i suppose better that something like that happens now rather than in a year's time isn't it yeah 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 i mean you know injuries are part and parcel it was just unfortunate when it happened he played the whole game it happened in the first half yeah and he ended up scoring like a 80 meter try in the second half with a bad knee but <laughs> as i said to him you know that that's the that's you know the last action you did that's what people remember and that's what selectors remember so you're, you're not making any mistakes on your couch over the summer so um come back next year 
play really well for Queens and we'll see what happens. Is that his sort of frame of mind at the moment is obviously I could ask you about the World Cup and his ambitions, but I'm guessing he is very much taking things one step at a time, looking to make that first England appearance. Oh, yeah. He's, I mean, when you look at Quinns, they've got a very strong back three. They're all available and they're all playing pretty well in the trials so far. So he's got to get back into that team. Um, and that's just the start. But, you know, that's the same as every year. So, you know, his attitude is I want to do really well for Quinns and whatever comes after that. Great. But yeah, I think I think at the moment it's just about getting back on the field and getting playing again and playing as well as he can and making sure that he, you know, his pace is there and all that sort of thing and improving his game. There's areas of the game that coaches have, you know, and he knows he has to work on. And so he's trying to get better. Michael, could I, I just ask, is is Lewis convinced that um, that wing or full back is his best position? Or do you feel that he, I feel that he, he looks a tremendously versatile player and England have got issues, obviously, in the centre and particularly at 12. He's a big lad. He's strong. Uh, he stays on his feet extremely well, seems to me, in contact, bounces out of contact very often. Do you think that that's at all a possibility for him? I know that Esther Hazen's obviously holding down that shirt at Quinn's, which makes it difficult to make that switch at that club and so on. But do you, do you see any, any, any mileage in that at all or not? Never say never, but he hasn't played a lot of 12 or 13, even at schoolboy level. Um, he was always 15. And then somebody called Freddie Stewart came along and uh, that sort of <laughs> meant that he moved to the wing and that sort of thing. But I think he sees himself primarily as a back three and that's what he's doing. Um, you're right. Quinns are pretty well stopped at 12 and 13. Um, at the moment so his his opportunities to play there if indeed the coaches or him or he wanted to play there they're, they're fairly limited I would think so you know I think he's happy where he is and you know you also you run the risk of this is me talking but you run the risk of becoming a versatile player and therefore your value is more on the bench than on on, on the actual team and while we all know that you know Eddie and others sort of go on it's a 23-man game and all that sort of thing you know you really want to nail down a position or a back three, you know, be a fullback and a winger, they're similar. And that's your that's your role. That's your profession. That's me talking. That's not him. I'm sure if you said play flanker, he'd go and do that. But I've always said to him, as long as you've got double figures on your back, I'm okay with it. So that's sort of stop <laughs> playing in the fours or growing a moustache and playing nine. <laughs> so if he's playing 16, he's reserve hooker, you're happy with it, yeah? <laughs> I haven't thought of that. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might want to rephrase that adage. Yes, yes. Michael, I, I don't mean this as an, as an overly personal question, but you're, you're, a, you're a rugby dad now as, as well as one of the great rugby players I've seen. Um, but it's, it, it's, a, it's, a di it's a different state of being, really. And with everything that's gone on on the player welfare side and the increased physicality and, and, and dynamism of the game and, 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 and everything, have, have you or your of your immediate family ever had any kind of reticence about about part of you and something you love getting involved in in a game which is pretty unforgiving these days it's always been unforgiving but it's, it's ferocious now it is and um yeah you're right it, it yes i i do get concerned not so much as i used to say when lewis first came up into the grade you know into harlequins and into premiership i think one of his first games was up at leicester during lockdown and he was marking the dollar that's sort of where you sort of go you know because you worry coming from school and then going to that next level in a fairly rapid sort of period of time 
and it's the physicality of the game you know can 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 he cope with that you know can because that's the big difference and even when I was playing I went from school into the Queensland team and skill wise yeah I was okay and all that sort of thing but when you got into contact you just realized how much stronger and more powerful the guys were and things that you could do at school you just couldn't get away with anymore so you literally had to relearn how to play the game and stay away from contact somebody my size and you know just you couldn't do things that you you were used to doing so once I saw that you know Lewis sort of coped reasonably well with the physical side and I spoke to him he said yeah I felt reasonably comfortable out there it didn't you know in terms of physicality etc but by the same token, it, it does worry you. And um, that's the same. We've got three boys and Lewis is the eldest. So it's the same with all three. You know, each time they go that step up, you know, whether it be Tom sort of going at 15 into the first 15 or now Nick going from 15 into the first 15, you know, whether they, you know, they're, they're, they're kids that are three years older than, and that sort of period, physical size can change a lot. And you come up some against some pretty big people, but you know, I'm, I'm happy they're playing a sport they like to play um, and enjoy. And it's a team sport and they've got good mates and they're, you know, they're enjoying it. That's the main thing. But also as a parent, you know, we've introduced all three of them to all sorts of different sports and they decide, you know, it's up, not up to us. I'd, I'd, I'd be happy if they were tennis players or golfers or something like that. That'd be nice. You know, if it rains, you go inside <laughs> and nobody's trying to hurt you. But, you know, they decide and we just support what they do and, you know, I just hope that rugby, you know, it seems to me to be that they're trying to do all they can to, you know, minimise head issues, et cetera. There's a long way to go and a lot of studies to do and a lot of things to do, but it seems to me they're trying really hard to the point sometimes where, you know, like with the Nick White, Faf de Klerk sort of issue that it's going a little bit the wrong way. But first and foremost, um, players need to be protected and not just at the pro level, but at all levels and all ages. I'm just interested in, in Michael's view on the way the direction that the game has, has gone and how it's changed since uh, his your, your playing days, Michael. Mm. You didn't have to deal with these stacked flatline defences strung across the field. Very often double tackles coming in, one low, one high. Do you feel that there is a real requirement, you know, with the numbers of players dropping off and so on for at young at a young age for them to dial back on this physicality and to commit forwards again to the ruck and maul in numbers so that there's space in the outfield for backs to be able to play and tilt at each other in the way in which they used to more? Yeah, and it's a really interesting topic. I've thought I've thought long and hard over this for a long period of time. And my sol- well, it's not a solution, but it's a it's a thought is that over the last hundred years or so, you know, players have changed, you know, professionalism, all that sort of stuff. Um, the only thing that hasn't changed is the size of the pitch. And given the fitness of the pro players now, and the ability to bring them on, it, the, the pitch is too small. Um, but you can't go changing pitches. So what you know, and this has been discussed a lot. I, I'd like to see that the first, the 15's picked and that's it. You know, you're allowed two two changes, subs or whatever, you know, tactical changes and then maybe some injury stuff as well because, you know, there are injuries. But I'd just like to see that that wholesale, you know, new forward tight five pack coming on in the on the 50th minute. And that's where, you know, you get fatigue on one side and fresh t- people on the other and that's where injuries happen I believe you know I don't know what the data says but just common sense says that if you put a tired bloke up against a fresh big guy they're in trouble 
So I'd like to see us going back to some sort of more control around the number of reserves and, and that come on the pitch, because I do think that that's a bit of an issue. And that would then create fatigue and that would then bring up um, space, you know, fast little guy against big fatigue guy. You're going to create space and opportunity around that. And, you know, defensive lines won't be coming up as quick and et cetera. And if that means we have more points, great. You know, I, I, I just think that fatigue's got to be brought back into the game as a factor. Is, 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 it, is it the case, Michael, in your view, that rugby was always a balance of, of endurance and dynamism? And mm. saying at the level I played, endurance was a lot more important than dynamism because men <laughs> were very dynamic. You'd have you would have played against some pretty dynamic yeah. the way through your career. But as the balance tilted massively towards dynamism and taken in certain certainly in some positions, front row obviously, just taken endurance pretty much out of it. Yeah, they have, and therefore size is huge. And so if you put endurance back into it, the size reduces because you can't carry. 25 stone round for 80 minutes and you get people saying you know you hear commentators saying oh no he's paid you know this front row's played a full 65 minutes they must be getting you know i think that all players should be capable of playing 80 minutes and therefore size gets reduced because it's much harder to carry 25 stone round than it is to carry 18 so by default you have to play longer you have to be a little bit more um Lena, uh, you know, I, I do think this this should be investigated and, and looked at, and and because defenses get broken down because of you know fatigue, that's fine by me, as long as it's not too dangerous, and it's not dangerous because the the players I think will become a little bit smaller. Twenty five stoner, and you stay on for eighty minutes. The last ten minutes, you're going to be blowing. I don't you know care how fit you are for a 25, 20 stone person, and that's the opportunity for people, you know, like you know, the Marcus Smiths or, you know, whoever, um, who, you know, really have a smaller bodies, but great, very quick. That's their opportunity, as it was in my day. You know, I used to look for big guys that were bludging on the blind side there, you know, that standing in the shade of the grandstand, having a, having a breath. That's where I used to go. <laughs> I used to run very quickly too, because I didn't want to be caught, but that's the opportunity. You take those. There's not a more insulting call on a, on a rugby field than mismatch, is there? When you have yeah. the ball, when you're asking for the ball and you line up the guy opposite you and you say mismatch, the guy opposite you yeah. just gives you this dagger stare, but it's always quite nice. Don't, don't come down my way, don't come in. Yeah. <laughs> Looks even more stupid if it goes wrong, to be fair. Yeah, exactly. Let's have a quick look ahead to not the premiership season as a whole, but the one words that has surrounded the start or the build up to the Gallagher premiership reason, and that's debt. Now, almost all clubs in England are in significant debt. The clubs most in debt, and I'm going off rugby pass here, are Bath, Newcastle, Saracens, Bristol and Wasps. Worcester are the talk of the town because the owners seem unable to pay off this debt, but they aren't even in the top five. This is the result of something that has been under the surface for years, right? And it's, you know, it's, it's bearing its claws now. Yeah, it's, it's the sort of dilemma professional rugby club rugby has always faced. Is It's not so much expenditure because I think rugby is fairly modest. Uh, in its expenditure, you know, for top sportsmen, they don't get paid an awful lot compared with others, is income. Club rugby has never generated the income that is required. Now, they've tried all sorts and, you know, good on them. That, that crowds have increased. They've increased capacity. Um, I don't think they earn as much from TV as, as they could. But it, the maths still don't quite work out. They've had some good owners and some bad owners. But again, you can't reply, you can't, you know, actually rely on the owners. 
but then you get to the bigger overall picture. I mean, this country is trillions of pounds in debt and keeps plowing on. You know, I'm in debt. I've still got a mortgage. Life doesn't stop. The country doesn't stop. Rugby doesn't stop because you have debt. Um, I think rugby needs to find a way of managing it and keeping it realistic. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the season's premiership. There's going to be some cracking games. There's going to be some capacity crowds. Uh, hopefully, as you get towards a World Cup, there's always a bit of sharpness and edge to proceedings. And hopefully we're going to have a cracking season. But it's the essential dilemma of professional club rugby. The maths don't really add up. You have to find a way of managing debt. Do you think then that this is going to be a premiership season, despite everything, that will manage to be unimpeded by this crisis, if I can call it a crisis? Well, that's a very specific question. I mean, you know, we could have a resolution or not to Worcester in the next two, three, four days. I mean, it's quite, you, where we used earlier, a dynamic situation. It, it could be resolved within a week, 10 days. I mean, it's going to be very tough for Worcester if this drags on throughout the season. And then and the worst possible scenario is they, they suddenly go under in like, you know, November or December, which really confuses the league. So you would hope and wish that something can be sorted out very quickly. Well, if we look at Wasps, we had Christian Wade on to speak about the Wasps debt situation. And the stats I have is that they're £112 million in debt, which is obviously a staggering amount of money. It's over two times higher than the next highest club. Christian Wade claimed to have all the answers to that. And Nick, I, I want to hear your thoughts on Wasps' situation. Well, I, you know, I mean, that the amount of debt, I mean, they're, they're um, I think, Br- Bristol are the next in uh, in terms of debt at 51 million. Yeah. You know, Wasps is double that. And they've got this bond issue, which they've uh, defaulted on the payments back, I think, at least three times uh, to date. I understand, you know, I mean, it, how do you run a premiership on the basis that, you know, if Worcester go, uh, that makes a mess of it, it makes a mess of the fixture list. If Wasps find themselves in dire straits during the course of the season, the whole thing begins to unravel to a degree. And, uh, you know, the, the, the question about the debt that the clubs have is not that they've got debt, but whether the debt's serviceable or not. And um, that's, the, that, that's the big question that's certainly facing Wasps and, uh, and, and many of the other clubs. You know, I mean, when players, aren't being, players and coaches aren't being paid on time, you know, that's, a, that's a, a serious issue for the running of any league. You know, I mean, the whole thing can grind to a halt. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I sort of think that there may well be the need for a complete reset in the English game. You know, the championship, you know, the championship clubs at the moment, their they're, uh, funding from the RFU is 150K each. You know, I mean, that's your second tier of professional rugby in this country. And it's produced half of the players in the England team. How does that work? You know, how, how is that sustainable? And then they talk about ploughing over 10 years, over a decade. The RFU is talking about ploughing 222 million into the women's game. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at the moment. Women's game is, you know, should definitely be funded. But to that level, when you look at the problems that there are in the men's game, and let's forget that, let's not forget that the thing that is, is basically uh, funding the men's game to a large extent is the England team, you know, is what happens at Twickenham. It's not the only thing, but it's a very significant part of it. So, you know, for me, the season is, it's a, it's really a crossroads season in many, many ways. And uh, 
I'm not sure, you know, it's very difficult to know what, how the premiership um, story plays out, but it's whether clubs can service their debt that is the, you know, is the critical issue. You, you do wonder a little bit, don't you, about the, the Rugby Football Union's role in all of this. I mean, I, I remember a chairman of the Rugby Football Union who, um, who I, I don't want Messrs. Sue grab it and run on my case um, uh, with a libel or a slander suit, so we, we won't name him. But I certainly do remember a chairman of the Rugby Football Union saying in the late 2000s, if we wait long enough, the premiership clubs will go bust and we can start again. Now I don't know whether I don't know whether that's that 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 uh, uh, that plot that strategy whatever you want to call it is still a part of rugby football union thinking, but there certainly doesn't and there, there has never been a good enough meeting of minds between the Premiership and its interested parties and the rugby football union. So you're always trying to push a hill, uh, uh, push a I mean, big stone up a hill because nobody is. Nobody is singing to mix a metaphor from the same hymn sheet, are they? Mm. But the RFU's funding the Premiership clubs at the moment. You know, I mean, it's their, you know, it's funding them up to the hilt almost. You know, but purely in return for access to players. For absolutely, that's, that's that's it and all about it. And I remember Rob Andrew, who's played both sides of this court, as we know. I remember Rob saying the the moment the Premiership clubs do not need. RFU money, which seems quite a long way off. <laughs> but, but the moment they don't need it, then all bets are off then in terms of, of them declaring UDI and just pushing off on their own and doing a Premier League. Mm. Um, it, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting... Uh, his argument was that the clubs are no longer run by Regulation 9 or anything that World Rugby <laughs> shows out. They're simply run by the RFU checkbook and their, and their need and their access to it. At Once the moment, ends, you've got a whole new set of political problems. Yeah, at the moment, though, there is absolutely, appears to be absolutely zero chance of them going and setting themselves up as a Premier League. Well, of course. Michael, um, one thing that is perhaps a byproduct of this is signings. And if we look at international marquee signings, the only one off the top of my head I can think of to come into the Premiership is Andre Pollard. Now, obviously, you came in Saracens in 1996 um, to sort of mark the start of professional rugby uh, and the domestic professional game in the UK. One of the issues with that is we may see a drop of quality in terms of the, the standard played in this league. Do you think that was something that maybe contributed to the England success in the early 2000s was having a very internationalised league, which meant that they could compete at those sorts of levels because they were acclimatised? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, they're, they're, the answer could, to that could be yes and no, because on one side, yeah, you'd hope that international players come in, sort of lift the whole thing and away you go. Um, and therefore, English players that are playing with these people um, improve their game. And then once they go to England, they're better players. That's sort of as a foreigner coming in here, you know, you back in 96, you know, you'd sort of, you know, you'd try, in my, in my person, I'd try to help people become, in my team, to become better players, you know, that's just the way I am. And not, but, you know, but then the other thing is I was a fly half and I'm taking the, a goal-kicking fly half, I'm taking the position of a possibly a young English goal-kicking fly half, which, you know, is, is a problem for England. And, but you sort of hope that, 
you know, you're giving in other places, you're giving in the teams you're playing against and those sort of things that that would increase the, you know, the playing ability of those around you, but also you give back to the club and to the players, et cetera. But look, this year we've yet to see what the reduction in salary cap means. It means probably more reliance, smaller squads or probably more, more reliance on younger academy members. Um, so we may see younger people being put into, um, you know, full sort of premiership games, whereas in the past that those players haven't got the opportunity. So maybe you, that could be a good thing, you know, giving young kids a chance because I see from here, you know, when you leave school to when you go into the premiership, there's a period of time there where you don't play a lot of games. And that's a problem, I think. And it's not just an English problem. It's a problem uh, elsewhere also. So maybe that's a good thing, giving young kids a chance before they previous years they could have got a chance. Um, there are some others apart from Pollard coming in that, you know, there's a, is it Scott CO down in Exeter that's Australian prop, mm. um, Australian prop, you know, um, coming in. Uh, so there are others, but, I you know, it's just let's just wait and see. I mean, everybody's supposed to be on the same sort of level. Um, so I, I think that the Premiership will be exciting again this year. I actually think the Premiership over the last couple of years has been pretty good to watch in comparison to other things around the world. I'm worried about the finances of the league. Um, you know, Worcester's brought that to a head, but I'm pretty sure they're not the only ones. And But that's been coming for some while and maybe COVID really sort of um, brought that on more. But, you know, then we had CBC coming in just before COVID and that money that was earmarked to, you know, help with infrastructure and all sorts of things that the clubs maybe was used to survive during COVID, which was a time, you know, just bad timing, I guess. But uh, now we're coming out of that and we've got real problems, I think, in terms of that. But let's just hope it's a good premiership. Crowds come back, TV, sponsors, all those sort of things that help um, the clubs get through um, to help service their debt. You're right, Nick. You know, they've all got debt and debt's not a bad thing as long as you can service it and service it comfortably. I, th I think the great saving grace in all of this is that the premiership to a greater or lesser degree, and quite often greater, delivers on the field. It's a tremendous, Michael says, it's a tremendous tournament. If you, if you have a tournament of, of this stature, I'm not talking about financial stature, but of this stature in, in terms of its competitive profile in non-international rugby, it's right up there. If you've got, I think I'm right in saying that in the last five years, there have been 11 different semi-finalists. 11 out of 13. London Irish and Worcester are the only sides who haven't made a semi-final in that period. Well, that's tremendous. When you look around at the big football leagues and the utter predictability of what's going to happen top two, top three, sometimes top one in Italy or France or Germany or Spain or Scotland, I think the Premiership's got a hell of a lot to offer. And, and I, I, I admire the people who perform in the Premiership massively because I think they delivered year on year whatever the financial pressures I think they, they delivered a tremendous spectacle actually. yeah but you say Chris there London Irish and Worcester haven't made a final final no, they played in a um I've forgotten the name of the competition but they played in that final last year where yeah. um, Worcester ended up winning an extra time oh, the, the Premiership Cup yeah. you know? so you know the, it, the competition's there it's just a matter of how you know how do they get out of this you know this sort of spiral where every dollar they make goes into paying debt. And, you know, that's that's the big issue. 
it's it's pretty tough, isn't it, for any business? So I mean, they're, they're all technically insolvent, probably, because yeah. it's, anyone who's paying eighty percent of their income to the staff that that's that's an interesting way of running a show. Yeah, but also now we've got you know with the cost of you know power and electricity and all that sort of thing, you know what? How how much more does it cost to put on a game on a Friday night? Yeah, no more floodlit matches. Is that the end of Friday night matches? Hey, Worcester might win a game if it's in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> it's great seeing you michael and, oh, yeah, thanks uh, nick and um let's hope that the uh the season is 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 more upbeat than the portents at the moment but yeah. uh, i think you know we, we we'll get going this weekend let's hope west worcester gets through and gets playing and plays the whole season players and staff and everything get paid and once we start playing we can start talking about things on the field rather than yeah it's not going to go away but at least we get crowds through the door and we start talking about other things even though that's going to be there in the background yeah i think that's exactly it well the gallagher premiership does kick off on friday and rest assured there'll be plenty of on-field discussion on the rugby paper podcast thank you so much michael it's been awesome having you great talking to you great to see you guys all the best thanks holly as always, the Rugby Paper is available in stores on Sundays or you can have it delivered to you through our digital subscription. Next week, joining us to discuss the United Rugby Championship season as well as look ahead to the season of the Ospreys is none other than their head coach, Toby Booth.